Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, thank you for that. Miss Shirley, not only for the reading, it's the first congregation I've ever heard that passage read to where I heard a groan, a groan, and a wow at the end of the reading. I don't think we listen very well to this passage. I think if you just listened to it, and I mean your heart was open to it, what you just saw was the clearest picture we get of the throne of God, the judgment seat of Christ. And notice, it didn't say you had a personal relationship with me. You prayed the sinner's prayer. It didn't say that. It didn't say, hey, you've had the Lord's Supper many times. That's good. It didn't say any of that. It didn't say anything other than, I was hungry. I was thirsty. And as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Wow. Now, Jesus had a brother. His name was James. Whole book. The book of James. And in that book, James says in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that our God... The Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's good religion. That's good faith. That's where this whole thing is headed towards. I want to suggest to you today, this is very serious business that we deal with this morning at Dayspring Community Church. We are talking about the works of mercy and how much God wants us to take those very seriously indeed. Now, I, I teach at a place called Wesley Biblical Seminary. So you might imagine that we kind of take John Wesley seriously, but so does our denomination and so does this local church. So when I throw out some Wesley stuff right now, One of the reasons we do so is we think Wesley had a pretty clear understanding of the Gospels and of the entire Bible. And so when we say that, he kind of saw some things, re-saw some things, rediscovered some things that the early fathers, the early church, and indeed the apostles themselves were saying, and we need to pay attention to those very things. John Wesley, in 1738, May of 1738, was at a meeting and... The preface, now this is like, I've read this preface, y'all. You talk about boring. Uh, It was Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And somewhere in there, Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And most people would say, that is what we call his conversion, or at least his evangelical conversion. That's where he turned on. However, As much as we like to look back at May of 1738, in the months that followed, Wesley continued to be plagued with doubt. His first two weeks following Aldersgate, Wesley repeatedly identified himself as weak in faith, largely due to his lack of joy. And then, the remainder of the year, he examined himself four times, once in January, uh, once in October, November, December, then that January date, and Throughout, he is concluding he's not a Christian. In January, he finally says, I don't think I'm a Christian. Wait a minute, dude. You got saved in May of 1738, and you are the people. You gave birth to the Methodists. They believe in the assurance of faith. That is, when you get saved, you know you're saved, and you act 
like you know you're saved. He wasn't acting like it. He's writing down in his journal, I don't even think I'm a Christian. Then something happened. A very famous Methodist scholar named Albert Outler says, if he had died before this date, we wouldn't even know his name. But in 1739, 1739, he did something that embarrassed him. He couldn't believe he was doing it. But what he found out was the more he began preaching on this thing that had happened to him in 1738 in May, the more he preached on it, the more churches didn't want him around. And so he finally goes to his buddy, George Whitfield. He says, George, I'm having a tough time getting preaching gigs. How about you? George says, not me. Wesley says, what's your secret? He says, I don't go to churches anymore. No, he, I didn't say he didn't go to church. He went to church, but I don't go to the try to get preaching gigs because they don't want me either, George. What do you do then? Well, said, I find that going out in the field and letting a couple people know that you're going to be there, it'll get you, I don't know, a couple thousand people. <laughs> a couple thousand people? You got to be kidding me. And so he said, yeah, come out. We're going to try it. And so that week, he went out with George Whitfield out to a field. And Wesley couldn't believe the mob that was out there. But it wasn't his kind of people. You see, Wesley was a guy that drank his tea with his pinky out. And he liked to be with those kind of people, too. He liked people that dressed just so. He liked the golden gilded Bibles. and He, he liked the ribbons around the altar. He liked the kind of church where the middle class and the upper middle class went. That's what he wanted. And all of a sudden now, he's out there saying, well, that's what I want, but apparently if you want a crowd, this is what you do. So he says, let me try it. He went out and tried it. And he found out that, oh my goodness, when I change my passion into compassion, and I'm willing to go take the gospel, not expect people will come to me, but if I take the gospel out to them, particularly the lower middle class, the poor, the dirty-faced miners, for instance, the farmers who smell, once I do that, oh my goodness, people show up and they respond to this gospel. And so, a historian named Luke Tyreman says, we looked at it, and in 1739, John Wesley preached 500 times, only eight of them. We're in churches. He found out that taking the gospel to the poor made his ministry profound. And for whatever it's worth, after that moment, there's none of this, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore stuff. He becomes an assured believer. This is what I come to believe. There's a lot of people out there not quite sure if they're going to do okay on Judgment Day. They're praying. They're scared. My friend Crawford Howe once said, listen, you cannot be an abundant life Christian if you're wondering whether you're saved or not. Now, that doesn't mean you sort of gin up, yeah, I think I am saved. I can do anything I want and still go to heaven. No, 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 no. What it means is you know that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's walking with you day by day, moment by moment. And in fact, you're following him, particularly out to the poor, to the disenfranchised, and to the oppressed. That's how you begin to know, I am saved. I have the assurance of faith. And that's what happened to him. So one day he dies, this John Wesley guy. 
And on his lips was not, you know, his brother Charles wrote 9,000 poems. About 7,000 of them went into hymn books one way or another. And of course, now they've winnowed it down to just a couple dozen that we know. But can you imagine 9,000 poems, 7,000 hymns, and John says, I'm not going to sing one of Charlie's hymns when I die. He planned on this moment. He said, die well, Methodist, die well. He said, when he's dying, he sings this. And by the way, I say this all the time. I can't sing, but I'm about ready to sing to you. And you don't know the tune. I don't know the tune that he sang this to. But it goes with uh, In Christ Alone. So can I do that? I'll praise my maker while I breath. And when my voice is lost in death. Praise shall employ my nobler powers. My days of praise shall ne'er be past. While life and thought and being last or immortality endures. I'll praise my maker while I've breath. And when my voice is lost in death. Now, I don't know how many stanzas he does. He would have known it by heart. He loved this hymn. I suspect he made it at least to verse 4. The Lord has eyes to give the blind. The Lord supports the sinking mind. He sends the laboring conscience peace. He helps the stranger in distress. The widow and the fatherless and grants the prisoner sweet release. (laughs) The Lord has eyes to give the blind. The Lord supports the sinking mind. And Wesley, inasmuch as the Lord has a passion for the poor, so should we. 1947, there was a guy named Robert Pierce. He worked for Youth for Christ. And with Youth for Christ, as he's visiting, he went to an orphanage. And there was a teacher at that orphanage named Tina. And Tina took a child, an abandoned child, and dropped this abandoned child in his lap and challenged him. What are you going to do about her? She said. And Pierce, his heart just broke. Here's this emaciated child in his lap, and she thinks I can do something about it. And undoubtedly, I most certainly probably can. And so Pierce reached into his pocket grabbed the last bill in his pocket, but said, listen, I'm going to send five bucks every month to care for this child. Then he went to his Bible. And in the fly leaf of his Bible, where I think all great things are written in a person's life, (laughs) he wrote this. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. So, Wesley, one day is writing, and he knows the thing that he's writing right here, right now, is going to be read by Methodists and by Wesleyans and by Nazarenes and by Dayspring hundreds of years from now. And he writes, let us be employed, not in the highest, but in the meanest and not in the easiest, but the hottest service. Ease and plenty, we'll leave to those that want them. Let us go on and toil 
in weariness, in painfulness, in cold or hunger, so we may but testify the gospel of the grace of God. The rich, the honorable, the great, were thoroughly willing, if it be the will of our Lord, to leave to all y'all. Let us alone with the poor, the vulgar, the base, and the outcasts of men. Take also to yourselves the saints of the world and suffer us to call sinners to repentance, even the most vile, the most ignorant, the most abandoned, the most fierce and savage of whom we can hear. To these we will go forth in the name of our Lord, desiring nothing, receiving nothing of any man save the bread we eat while we're under his roof. Then let it be seen whether God has sent us. In this town, he says, there's going to be all kinds of competition for the rich, the honorable, the tithers, the saints. Wesley says, we'll leave those to the Baptists, leave those to the Presbyterians, leave those to the other people, leave us to the poor that nobody wants, the vile who were embarrassed that they just said that thing a moment ago, to the ignorant, that's the people we want to go to mostest with the bestest of, we've, of what we've got. That's what it means to be a Methodist then and today. It's what it means to be a day springer. That's what it means to be a day springer. Stanley Jones is one of those Methodist missionaries. And one day he's in a meeting. It's called a round table, a religious round table. At a religious round table, you invite all kinds of religious perspectives to come in and just share what their faith, whether it's faith in Islam, Buddhist, Krishna, whatever it is, what your faith has done for you, and there's no argumentation. You don't challenge anybody. Just share your story. And Joan says, as many times as we've done this across the decades, not once did we do it where the Holy Spirit of Jesus was in control of the meeting at the end. Everybody just share your stuff and watch the Holy Spirit take control. So they're doing that. And one of the guys, a Brahmin, rich lawyer guy, who doesn't want to do much with the underclass, the outer class, he says, hey, you all Christians say you've been saved. Well, I've been saved. Like Jesus has saved you, so Krishna has saved me. And the guy running the meeting says, thank you. Thanks for the testimony. Thank you. And then the meeting went on. At the end of the meeting, Stanley Jones said, listen, hey, we're glad Krishna has saved you. We really are. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to go down to the poor quarters. We're going to sit on their beds. We're going to hold their hands. We're going to eat what they eat. We're going to love them. We invite you to come along with us if you'd like to come. And the guy said this, the Brahmin, Ah, Sahib. I always love that term, Sahib. Anyway, Ah, Sahib. I'm saved, but I'm not saved that far. The question comes for all of us. How saved are you? Saved enough where on the day of judgment, Jesus looks you in the eye and says, I was hungry and you came to me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was in prison. I was in an elementary school. I was out at the abortion clinic. I was at the nursing home. And you came and you ministered to me. And as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto 
me. I've got kind of a scary week coming up. I'll just go ahead and admit it to you. You know, they give people deadlines for a reason. And I'm facing one. Then what I found out is, oh, I've got to go somewhere. I've got to go to Georgia on Thursday and preach on Friday and Saturday. I'll be back here for Sunday, but preach on Friday and Saturday. I just, oh, whoa, whoa. Whew, so it's not a deadline for February. It's all of a sudden a deadline for I've got to get it done on Wednesday. And it's still, a, so, so this is, it's, it's a book on works. It's a book on Matthew 25 stuff. And uh, Caleb, my son, is writing this book with me, as, as, as well as a very prominent theologian, maybe the most prominent Wesleyan theologian out there right now, a guy named Thomas McCall. Tommy, we call him. He came to our seminary. And so Tommy one day says, let's write this book together. So we're writing this book, and then he says, hey, let's, let's get Caleb in here with us. Ah, that'd be great. So Caleb's in there with us. So uh, we got a deadline this week. And guess who's not done? Well, great thing about not being done, if you got two other guys working with you, and I, 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 I typed a message to Tommy, say, how you doing? And got back to me. <laughs> I think we're all in the same boat, but he, he, he probably, he may be, I don't know. So, but Caleb called last night, I said, hey, how are you coming on your, your, your party? I said, I think I'm going to be done, it's going to be closed, it's going to be tight, I'm going to really work on it. I said, what are you doing with Matthew 25? He says, well, I've looked it over. Looks to me like it means what it seems to say it means. Isn't that the thing about Scripture? <laughs> There's no way you can nuance that to say, you know, I was hungry, you didn't come to me, but you had a good excuse, Matt. You know, yeah, yeah, you had that every Thursday night commitment of yours, and good job for keeping the commitment. I think I'm okay with you. Come on in. That's not what Jesus says. I say, you sure, Caleb, that's not what he says? So... I want you to know in the last 10 years especially, that may be happened before this last 10 years, but in the last 10 years, there have been people looking at that passage, I don't know, I think they're looking for the, you ever heard of this term scat hole? It's that little hole out there where uh, the, the, the cat or the mouse or whatever it is, you, you come storming in and something that's on the floor wants to get out of here, they go through the scat hole. So people have been looking at this passage for a while thinking, where's the scat hole? I want to know. Hey, you got your Bible? I want to show you where the scat hole is. I asked Caleb, what are you doing with the scat hole? So here it is. Matthew 25, it's verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers, you did it for me. Now for the last 10 years, I've seen article after article saying, scat hole, let me tell you why I don't. And my people don't do this. It's because brothers. It's brothers. Brothers means the church. That what Jesus really meant here, I love that too, don't you? What Jesus really meant. You ever done that before? What he really meant here, he didn't mean turn the other cheek. He meant, uh, uh, what he meant was, and you got to come up with something real quick, 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 quick. No, what he meant here wasn't, hey, take care of the poor and the oppressed in your community. Take care of the prisoner community. Take care of the nursing home. Take care of the people that can't read. Take care of the ignorant. No, what he really meant here was, the church is going to suffer here in the next several years. And Jesus says, as the church suffers, the church is going to be hungry, so you better take care of my body, my brothers, sisters, the church, the church, the church, the church. I said, Caleb, is that what it means? He says, nope. But he says, you know something? What I'm going to write is this. It means, no, 
Jesus wants us to take care and have a deep concern with the hungry, the thirsty, the poor, the oppressed, the disenfranchised. And every single one of us needs to be doing it. That's what it means. That's what it's always meant. And that's what the church has suggested has meant through the years. But having said that, for those people who think it means brothers, he says, Dad, he says, there's people out there. And Jesus says, love your enemies. If your enemy's hungry, you need to love him and do what? Take care of him. He says the whole testimony of scriptures over and over again, this isn't just for us. This is for the world. That's what I'm going to write, Dad. Man, all I could say was amen and amen and amen to that. Y'all, this, this is for you today. This is for us. Jesus wants you to have a ministry to some impoverished place in this community and go regularly. Most of us don't want to be bothered. We think, no, no, no. I asked Jesus into my heart. I have a personal relationship with Him. I've always wondered about that. If you have a personal relationship with Him, then where are you right now? Because He's over there taking care of the hungry. Why are you over here? You better follow Him to the places of need. Now, I'm not going to say you're not occasionally going to minister to the rich. Even Jesus does that. But on the whole, he runs to the sound of the pain. We want to be that congregation in this community. The ones that run to the sound of the pain. And as much as we're willing to do that, as much as we're willing to be that kind of crazy, Jesus will bless us. Why? So that he can make us even more capable of running to the sound of pain. Because y'all, that is the abundant life. The abundant life is not a better car. The abundant life is not a bigger house. The abundant life is not you feeling good. The abundant life is getting to the sound of the pain, getting to the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned, the poor, the disenfranchised. That's our call. That's abundance. 1994, guy named Leroy Sievers. Worked for a program. He actually was a producer of Nightline. Anybody remember Nightline? ABC's program. So he was sent to Rwanda. And he says, you know, I've seen evil in the world. I've seen evil all over the world. I've seen it up close. But nothing comes even close to Rwanda. The country's two primary ethnic groups, Hutu and Tutsis. And of course, the Hutus are systematically slaughtering the Tutsis. And this wasn't with smart bombs. No, no, no. It's with machetes, clubs, and knives. Almost a million people killed by hand. So Severus, he says, to this day, I'm affected by it. He says, I went to the Zaire-Rwanda border, known as Camp Cholera. Can you imagine Camp Cholera? He says, and there, there are 50 to 100,000 Rwanda refugees. They came here to die, to rot away into the ground. One event, he says, in particular, is seared in my mind. He says, I'm standing, I'm just going to read this to you. He says, I'm standing here, and I feel something on my foot. And I look down, and I see a small boy. He looked to be about five, but I knew that meant he was probably 10 or 12. He says, maltrition will do that. And he's lying on his back, and he'd thrown his arm up over his head, and his fingers had gotten tangled in my boot laces. As I looked in his eyes, 
I see the light go out. He dies tangled in my bootstrap. All I could do in that moment was shake my foot, free my laces from his fingers, and move on to go catch up with my team. Every night, he says, when I lie down in my bed in my nice suburban home and I close my eyes to sleep, that little boy comes to me and he tugs on my boot laces. And every night he asks me, why did you let this happen? And I have no answer. And every night I pray, there'll be the last time he comes and tugs on my laces. But I know better. Oscar Romero comments on Matthew 16. You remember the passage. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Romero says this. Those who in the biblical phrase want to save their lives, this is what save their lives means, number one. They just want to get along. Can't we all just get along? Number two, they don't want commitments. Number three, they don't want to get into any problems. Number four, they just want to stay outside of messy situations that demands the involvement of their lives. Those people are the ones that lose their lives. But there are those who, for the love of Christ, uproot themselves and they go with the people and they go with the poor in their suffering. They become incarnated in those worlds and feel as their own pain, their pain. Their pain is now their pain. Their abuse is now their abuse. And they secure their lives because the Father will reward them. Inasmuch as you've done it, to the least of these you've done it unto me. Go to hell. Or, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Heaven for you. That's the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. God have mercy. Mercy enough to get us to get up and go. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, my friends.